What's up, y'all? How's everybody doing? Hoping everybody is well. Give y'all some time. Good to see we got a few people here nice and early. All right. What's up? Shout out to Malika. Appreciate that support, man. <laughs> call me. He called me the sorcerer supreme. <laughs> y'all crazy. <laughs> Hope you good, man. Uh, so Jose, all right. Okay, let's see you. Uh, all right, hi, Scholar, what's the word? Carl, what's going on? Mark, how you doing? Joe Average Brother, what's up? Didn't get a notification. Yeah, man. I don't know, my shadow band, boy, they, they're real interesting with it. Uh, make sure you're subscribed, double check that, you know. Uh, but I appreciate you letting me know, man. Neo, what's up? Good evening. Getting people in here slowly but surely. Ah, Artisan, what's up, man? You got to give me that update on the, on the shop, man, so I can help you uh, get the word out. I had to make a drive to my comic book store yet again, but uh, still waiting to hear from my brother so I can, I can go through him. So you got to let us know, man, so we can help you out. What's up, Hotep? Glad you're catching a live. Welcome. Hope everybody is well. Cameron, much appreciated. Thanks a lot, brother. Hope everything is well with you. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting one today. You know, it's interesting because, you know, when I decided on the topic and I decided to choose a face, I chose Bill or Dr. Cosby, but I actually hadn't been alerted that he was getting out today yet. So I actually created the thumbnail before um, all the news broke loose. That was kind of interesting to me. All right. Let me see. Smoked. Good to see you in here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Morpheus of the Matrix. Appreciate that, Mark. What's up, Prodigy? What's going on? Ian, what's going on? Good to see you in here. Yeah, man. I wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, you know, I was really, you know, choosing Bill is kind of like going back. If this was in the mid nineties or late nineties and choosing OJ. I mean, there's a face of, of, of black, a black monstrosity, black male monstrosity that's handpicked, you know, every year or so, every couple of years, depending on the severity of the crime and people are real comfortable with that. So we're going to get in a, into a little bit of that in a little bit. I'm just letting people come in a little bit. What's up, Brandon? Good to see you in here. You know, um, yeah. Well, I, I I wouldn't say I knew he was going to get out. Um, I knew what was going on, you know, by the letter of law shouldn't have been allowed to happen based on the agreements he made prior to going in. But I didn't know he was going to get out. You know? <laughs> but when you have money, you can do stuff like that. But there are a lot of nameless brothers who have been locked up for sometimes decades behind not having enough resources to advocate for themselves. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's going to be backlash, but there's going to be backlash both ways, Cameron, because Bill is going to sue. Is going to find 
There's going to be some counter suits. This is going to get real interesting. Uh, what's up, Mr. Blue Collar? What's going on? Mike, what's happening? Uh, okay, yeah. We're getting, it, we're getting it in here. We're getting it in here. 82 watching. Again, please like, share, subscribe, join, donate. Let me go through my my regular, regular. Y'all know how it is. So, you know what it is for tonight. Black males are still America's imaginary monster rapists. Um, that has not changed in quite a while. I don't think it's going to change uh, anytime soon, but uh, we'll delve into it. But nevertheless, welcome right, to the Onyx Report, where black male justice advocates uplift black men and boys using critical analysis. Right? Um, let me see. Keel, good to see you in here. Solis, appreciate that support. Right? Set in the West, what's going on? Uh, let's see. Yeah, exactly. Brandon is hitting them in the comment section off of Facebook. Uh, the zombie candy man, you know, is identifying a number of these things. We are definitely the face of monstrosity. We are the perennial other that scares people. Crispus, shout out to you for the cash out. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. And speaking of which, uh, as you can see on the screen, a lot of ways to support the show. Patreon, Cash App, PayPal, Venmo. Uh, you can also become a member. All you got to do on YouTube is click the join button right next to the subscribe button below. Uh, below the video, you should be able to do that. There are different levels of membership. You can look at the perks that come with it and choose which you'd like to have. You can also go to Patreon and become a member through there. And you can actually become a member in terms of supporting the Institute for Black Male Studies. Um, so look into any of those options, subscribe, join, donate, uh, support, uh, so we can continue in this role. Chief, appreciate that support. Mr. Blue Collar, appreciate that support, sir. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, we got a lot to delve into tonight. So much going on, man. It's, it's, it's a lot, actually. Bill caught me completely off guard. I ain't gonna lie. Uh, that really caught me off guard this morning. I woke up like... Ooh, about to be a lot of pissed off folk on social media today. That much is true because folks was dancing in the streets when he got locked up. I was like, word, this is the monster of the century that's been raping and killing. Oh, okay. Interesting. You say so. But nevertheless, uh, is what it is. So, uh, actually, you know, before I do that, let me actually go ahead and thank my uh, subscribers to date. Um, let's see, Rick Ross, appreciate that support. Thank you. All right, let me go ahead and uh, thank my subscribers. So y'all check this out.
shout out to my supporters, my, my subscribers. Uh, appreciate all that you do and have done. Right. Um, and I'm going through it. Found out I have a, a pinched nerve in my, in my, really it's in my neck, but you feel it all down your arm. Thought I was having a stroke, but I was like, you know, I don't think strokes last for two years. Let me actually finally go see somebody about this mess. Oh, yeah, you got a pinched nerve. I'm like, oh, rather that than a stroke. I'm with that. So working on that, trying to get it all out. I went to see a chiropractor, Brandon. I didn't get, man, they gave me a massage, but I need to go get the real joint, you know, where they get into it. Um, but you had that too, Artisan? Then you end up with sciatica, like down your arm, and which is like severe pain. And it feels like it's in your arm, but it's not really in your arm. It's actually coming from a nerve in your neck, in your spine, uh, in your you know, spinal column or whatnot. That's being pinched. And uh, same thing. I used, to, I used to get sciatica down my leg when it'd be in my back. It's, it's, uh, it's confusing. I'll tell you that. But that mess hurts, man. That mess wakes you up in the middle of the night. Boy. Um, but much appreciation. For the support, we got 145 in here. Again, like, share, subscribe, join, and donate. Uh, what's going on, Jason? Appreciate that support. Um, how do I deal with the pinch nerve? Well, you know, they told me to ice and heat uh, several times a day. Told me to go get adjusted. I don't know. That's where they are with it. So that mess, that mess, boy. Woo, it will throw you off. You will be in some pain. I'm telling you, it is it is not the most exciting thing in the world. Anyway, all right, so let's get into it. Let's see what we can do here. All right, so we're gonna start with our sacred black male series, black masculine series. Uh, and this is where we honor black men because that's one of the things we do over here in the Onyx Report. We support and honor black men, we celebrate the achievements of brothers. But it is an organic thing. It's as it runs across my desk. So if you think there's something I should share, please let me know. Uh, if I haven't shared it, it's not because I don't think it's important. It's simply because it may not have run across my desk. So uh, please make sure you do. Yeah, I'm definitely working on taking care of myself. So um, it's it's on. It's on. Already lost some weight. About to lose a whole lot more. I'm getting my getting my getting my thing together, y'all. So, all right. We got up on the agenda. For those of you who may not be familiar, um, this gentleman here is one James Sedanius, or also known as Jim Sedanius. Jim Sedanius is one of the foundational thinkers um, in what we would identify as black male studies, but somewhat retroactively. He came out with work a good deal of time, a good period of time ago, that we, in many ways, appreciate that, Lloyd. Thank you very much. Um, oh, really? Crying because they let him out. Huh? Oh, interesting. Oh. Afro Nerd, what's going on? Dr. Thunder, what's the word, man? Good to see both of you guys up in here. Uh, Barry, what's happening? Right. And some people in here. Uh, Lorenzo says, research cervical decompression, regular stretching of your neck and muscles. That's what they did today, but I will definitely look into that. Thank you, Lorenzo. All right, so Jim Sedanius, foundational thinker, social dominance theory. We're going to talk a little bit about that and his contributions to what would later be known as black male studies. 
Um, and I was introduced to Sedanius's work. At least I thought I was introduced to Sedanius through Dr. Tommy Curry. Shout out to him. Um, what I what I found out, however, is I do remember when um, Sedanius actually came to the Claremont Colleges when I was there in graduate school. I didn't know who he was, and at the time, I didn't think I was studying gender. Meaning. I was studying gender as it related to my coursework, but I had not embraced it in terms of my own research. Um, not really. So when he came, um, I regretfully, I watched the lecture, but I didn't record it. You know what I mean? I didn't, it, it, it it's like, you know, it, I don't know how else to put it. it. It would be like, if you got to see somebody who's going to be significant to your life 25 years later, but you didn't know it. You know what I mean? Um, it was one of those kind of things. So I saw him, and um, he had like he had like two young Caucasian women assistants, and he was up there ripping intersectionality. And I was like, "Who is this dude? Like, what is you know? He looked kind of nerdy. I didn't know what to make of it. But you know, um, I come back full circle. You know, uh, probably about three years ago, three four years ago. And um, you know, Tommy is sending me a couple articles. He's like, "Look, read this. You got to check this out." And I'm like, "All right." So I start going through it, and I'm like, "Damn, who the hell?" It's dropping all it is. And it took me a while to not only reconcile what the weight of his work meant, but also what it meant to have been introduced to him before and not realized it. So that's one of the advantages of the Claremont Colleges. You had all kind of people that would come speak because, you know, for the most part, they were fairly elite, posh, you know, white schools. So, you know, you get the best of the best, as they say, that would come speak there. But I really I didn't appreciate the weight of his presence until much later. Sad to say, however, just got this news today. As I understand it, it just happened today that Dr. Sedanius has passed away. So if you can look at him on Wikipedia, you can see he's born December 11, 1945, passed away June 30th, 2021. So shout out to this brother, to the legacy of his work, which we will keep alive in Black Male Studies, uh, because it is, you know, incredibly relevant, incredibly important. And he lays an imperialist, uh, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> imperialist. he lays, um, you know, a foundational empiricism to his approach to studying human behavior. But I still haven't found out the cause of death as of yet. Um, I did see an obituary, but it was weird. It was it, it was so many advertisements that on it that every time I scrolled to the portion where it went into his life, uh, it would just give me a wall of new advertisements. So I didn't get to actually find out what he passed of and what the issue was. But it, it blew me away that he passed away today. So shout out to Dr. Sedanius. And I'm going to cover just a small portion of um, some of his work right now, just to kind of point out to you why he was important. You know, now I'm going to um, read this. I know it's probably a little too small um, to put on screen. So I think it might be best if, well, let me see. I'll try and get it on screen, see if I can. Yeah, there we go. All right. So basically, you know, um, James H. Sedanius, professor of psychology, UCLA, right? And, um, he writes, social dominance theories identifies three distinct yet interrelated systems of group-based social hierarchy. These systems are based upon the distinctions of A, A, age, B, gender, and C, what we call arbitrary sets. Arbitrary sets are highly flexible and situationally contingent social constructions of group membership. 
Examples of such arbitrary sets are distinctions based on citizenship, social class, race, ethnicity, clan, lineage, caste, region, etc. Using survey, archival, and experimental data dealing with both gender and ethnic discrimination across several cultures, and framing this data in terms of ideas taken from evolutionary psychology, this talk, it was the talk I got this from, will argue that one, while gender and ethnic discrimination share a number of features in common, these social phenomena are driven by qualitatively different motives and serve distinctly different social functions. Now, hold on. I want to emphasize something a little bit right there. So one of the important things that, that Sedanius did against the, 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 the current, against the stream, against the trends going on in the academy, this is a black male that actually began to argue against some of the things taken for granted um, uh, about Appreciate that, Night King. Thank you very much. About the nature of race, gender, and so on and so forth, he actually argued that despite the common practice of suggesting that all of these are similar categories that come out of similar circumstances, that they're actually qualitatively different, right? That took a, a great deal of courage because, you know, and to this day, the current screen, the current trend is to use them almost interchangeably. And this is one of the, the, uh, the fallouts of intersectionality. Right, that we the race, class, sex, gender are, are damn near interchangeable. That now that's not to say that that's necessarily what Crenshaw was arguing, but it is to say that is how it's been used. It, they become interchangeable categories. So Sedanius gives us a framework that suggests nope, these are actually different categories and they have different purposes, or at least them from different contexts. So let's continue. So um number two. Right. Psychology of gender is incomplete without the inclusion of the psychology of arbitrary set hierarchy, specifically regarding invariant gender differences with respect to the predisposition to establish and maintain group-based social hierarchy. Likewise, complete understanding of the psychology of arbitrary set discrimination is incomplete without an understanding of the gendered nature of ethnic and racial discrimination. Right. Uh, come on, come on. There we go. All right. And number three, and this is the this is the one that I'm uh, I really want to highlight here. The very popular double jeopardy hypothesis argues that women of color suffer from a double handicap and are discriminated against on the basis of both their gender and their ethnicity. However, this presentation argues. Okay, uh, thanks for the support, Jay Rizzle. Appreciate that. Um, he says, this presentation argues that uh, this popular thesis is fundamentally flawed. So when he's talking about double jeopardy, right, this is something that we've known more so as intersectionality. But the argument that, you know, at the end of the day, there's a double handicap. There are multiple issues stacked upon each other based on one's identity. Right. And he says, in its place, we substitute the support the subordinate male target hypothesis, SMTH. SMTH argues that while women from both dominant and subordinate arbitrary groups, for example, different races as one example of arbitrary groups, are discriminated against on the basis of gender. Women from subordinate, subordinate arbitrary set groups are generally excuse me, not directly discriminated against on the basis of their arbitrary group membership. Say again, race. Rather, arbitrary set discrimination, racial discrimination as an example, is primarily directed against males from subordinate arbitrary sets. More broadly, social dominance theory suggests that arbitrary set discrimination should be regarded as a form of intergroup conflict and a largely male-on-male -male project. 
such conflict is primarily executed by males and primarily targeted against outgroup males rather than outgroup females. That is powerful. That is powerful. So in a very common tongue, all he's basically saying is that if you're going to talk about racism, if you're going to talk about white supremacy, if you're going to talk about racial aggression, discrimination, oppression, the target is generally males. If you're talking about one group attacking, dominating, you know, whether it's 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 whether it's colonialism, whether it's enslavement, it's usually a project initiated by males, right, in the in-group, and it's targeted at the out-group males, the males that tend to suffer the impression the oppression. Right? So and he's basing this argument not strictly on the history of African Americans during slavery and so on and so forth. He's arguing this after having done multiple tests about the nature of human behavior. He's arguing that this tends to be the case across contexts. So it doesn't necessarily have to be African Americans and Europeans or Africans in particular. And he's saying that when you have one group dominate another, right? Militaristically, physically, so on and so forth, on a macro level, not just you know an individual. He's saying that basically what you tend to have is a male-on-male dynamic. And although women are present and they definitely feel the impact of some of this, they are not the primary target. So what would be one of the most clear-cut examples of that in the contemporary moment as it relates to Black America? Well, y'all have heard me talk about this all the time. This is a perfect example. Let's look at police homicide. This is one of the issues that's been in the news. If we look at the numbers in regard to police homicide, let's see what Sedanius was talking about, because we have a, a number of different arbitrary sets. We can use race. We can use uh, we can use sex. We can use sexuality. You know, we can use gender. We can use, you know, sex and sexuality. I mean, the same thing. But nevertheless, you can use all of these different categories in the context of police homicide in the black community as initiated right, by the police, whether they be white or otherwise. We saw with the Derek Chauvin case, there were there were multiple police officers. They weren't all white. So the police initiating violence or uh, against or homicide, I should say, against African-Americans. Let's look at the numbers. Well, we know that two to three hundred of those killed by the police are black males. About nine to 13 are black females. I reported on a study that came out of UCLA last year that tried to examine police homicide on the basis of sexuality. And one of the things they talked about in in relation to trans deaths was that roughly speaking, you had a black trans or trans person in general killed every other year. That was the basic breakdown of the number of trans. And the difficulty there too, especially when you're talking about black trans, is if you have uh, a female to male trans person, they're visibly identified with being male. So when you talk about police homicide against black men, they kind of fall into that category. If you're talking about a a male to female trans person, the numbers for them being killed by police officers is extremely low. And realistically, the numbers for women being killed by black black women being killed by police, police officers is particularly low. Why? It's not necessarily because white men have a love for black women, but part and parcel to Western culture there is a generic idea of chivalry in place to some extent, but to another extent, and I think this is what Sedanius was pointing to, males are primarily fixated on dealing with other males. This is why black males find themselves being the most harassed, the most um, killed, most subject to homicide by instruments of the state. 
hell, we've, we've, we've inherited that model to such a degree that even within the community, when you talk about homicides, intra-racial homicides within the community itself, black men are killing black men. And these are, and these are mostly environmental issues. And you start dealing with poverty, you start dealing with drugs, you start dealing with these kind of dynamics, but it still tends to be male male. Even if you look at the top 10 causes of death, men find themselves at the top of that. So my point simply being that what Sedanius was arguing when he talked about arbitrary set discrimination, when he talked about SMTH, he basically was pointing out that it tends to be a male-on-male endeavor. And when you overlook that and you try to make it an everybody endeavor, what you end up doing is washing out, watering down the reality of what's going on. What's up, Quavo? Good to see you in here, man. Yeah, man, I just found out today he passed. I, you know, if you, And if anybody has any information on the cause of death, go ahead and shoot it in the comments or you can send it to me privately. But uh, I was sad to hear about that, man. Yeah. And as uh, Brother Quavo put it, right? Black men are targeted for annihilation while black women are targeted for possession. I ain't mad at that description. What's up, Officer Faulkner? Good to see you in here. Right. This is what we're looking at. What's up, Saint African Ninja Person? Good to see y'all in here. John, what's going on? Okay. All right. So, shout out to Dr. Sedanius. Um, you know, his work will definitely live on in another generation of scholars, um, particularly young black male scholars or scholars who are doing the work of studying the lives of black men uh, from a place of honesty and from a place of um, you know um, integrity in regard to the realities of black male life. Um, he will be remembered if in no other way in the work he's brought to bear. So thank you for your sacrifice, sir. Um, I hope the ancestors are pleased and um, blessings to your family. This is another piece up that I want to celebrate since we're talking about the sacred black masculine. This is a piece you can find on sanfrancisco.cbslocal.com and it's entitled STEM Academy Fellowship Trains Black Men to Become Teachers, right? Uh, only 2% of teachers are black men according to the U.S. Department of Education. Now, stop, pause for a quick second, right? We know that black males tend to lead the groups going being put into special ed, particularly in elementary school. We know that the graduation rates for black males tend to be the lowest. And most of the time they don't account for GEDs. And when you do, you find that black males are actually graduating more so than black women, or at least I, I use graduation loosely when I talk about GEDs, but they are achieving their GEDs. They're, they're, are, they're earning them uh, in higher numbers than black women are graduating. But that's usually not part of the conversation because GEDs don't necessarily lend themselves to college admission to the same degree. Nevertheless, um, one of the things I wanted to point out here is that if you only have 2% of teachers being black men and black boys tend to be doing worse than everyone, is there a correlation? Might that be something we think about? Well, here on the Onyx Report, we have talked about that before and we know there's a need for black male teachers. However, what there is also a need for is, a prote is protections for black male teachers. Black male teachers tend to be brought in and used as uh, muscle in the classroom. I've done, I've experienced this firsthand. I've taught every level prior to uh, teaching university level. I taught elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, and then college, right? And one of the things I noticed is that everywhere I went, 
I was um, not only was I called in to intimidate young male students in other people's classes, but eventually they would give me all the you know kids that had the most problems. Now, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that, but I noticed that it was a dynamic that I didn't experience by myself. Right? It tended to be something that a lot of black males who went into the classroom, even if only as substitutes, tended to be something they experienced quite a bit. But when those very black males would also develop programs that they knew would, would suit the environment they were in, didn't care, I don't care if you're talking about New York, St. Louis, Texas, you know, uh, Compton, that's where I was, you would create programs that suited the environment you were in and find very limited resources being used to help you. As a matter of fact, most of the time you'd hit a ceiling where people would want you to shut up, go back to the classroom and serve as quiet muscle. You didn't even really have to teach. You just had to keep them under control so that they didn't bother anyone else until they could get through. That's one of the things I tend to notice when it came to black males in the classroom, K through 12 most particularly. You were hired muscle. And your job was not to teach our kids. Your job was to uh, subdue them, intimidate them and shut them up. But you yourself had to shut up and you couldn't speak with authority, let alone influence immediate local policy, even right there on the campus in ways that you thought would be helpful long term. So this is one of the reasons for high levels of burnout. For black male teachers who are interested in going in the classroom. Now, we also know that it tends not to be the case that you're going to get, you know, get paid a great deal, which can make it difficult to support families, even divorced families. If you're paying child support, it can very, be very difficult to do that on a teacher's salary. So you don't see a lot of us gravitating toward that, but I don't think that's the primary reason that you find low, such low numbers of black male teachers. Part of the reason that you find that kind of dynamic, I think, is because the limitations imposed upon black males in that environment. So I just wanted to qualify this article with a little bit of my own experiences, some of the experiences I've heard from some of you who've taught in the classroom and noticed the resistance you've gotten, even from the local administration to the school board, for trying to implement programs that you thought would help. Right? So you can see some of the brothers right now in the comment section going off on that. Because it doesn't seem that I'm alone. Right? Now Brandon says you are mental security. Real talk. Right? Charles is even chiming in on it. Very true. Absolutely. This is how we're seen. We're not seen for our, our, our contributions intellectually, you know, our capacity to build. We're seen as penis, muscle, and really everything else is kind of an extension of that. You know, you start talking about protection for women, that's still muscle. Right? You start talking about being sperm donors, you're still talking about penis. Whether it's sexual, uh, whether it's sexual benefits or whether it's reproduction, you're reduced to muscle and, you know, and the phallus. And it's interesting that it's consistent with how white society sees black men, but that's a discussion for another day. So anyway, getting back to this article, right? It says when Randall Saraguchi, um, you should be able to see on the screen here, right? Mr. Saraguchi, and I may be mispronouncing his name, uh, took be, uh, when he became executive director of Urban Ed Academy in 2016, San Francisco nonprofits after school STEM program matched kids of color with mentors who look like them. Saraguchi stretched his mission a step further to put one black male teacher in every school in the country. He says, you can't be what you can't see. And there's all, uh, and there's all the talk about representation matters and not a lot of tangibility on what that looks like. So he launched Man the Bay, a four-year fellowship program that trains black men to become teachers, 
Appreciate that, Will. Hope everything is well with you. Um, <laughs> let me go ahead and put it up here. It says, Crow, Melissa, and Rubichaud, Jerry, 2020, Racial Microaggressions and Racial Battle Fatigue, Work-Life Experiences of Black School Principals. Get it. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Um, very appreciative. So those of you who are um, interested in reading more about that, you can check out that paper there. Goes into more detail. And shout out to Dr. Smith. If you're not familiar, you definitely need to be. Check out Dr. William Smith and all his work, particularly on racial matter, uh, microaggressions and racial battle fatigue in and of itself. Um, you can check a number of, of works that he's done. You will find a great deal of information that you'll find useful. So um, don't sleep, Dr. Smith. All right. So. <laughs> Appreciate the support, Lee's Ways. Thank you. Um, anyway, so he says, uh, you know, so he launched Man of the Bay, a four-year fellowship program that trains black men to become teachers. He recruits college graduates from historically black colleges and universities. They come to the Bay Area for free training throughout the California State University system, classroom experience at San Francisco public schools, and housing that is fully paid for. Funding comes from the city, plus grants uh, from foundations and, cor and corporations. I might have to get involved in that. So he, so this is something that, that uh, he uses the Cal State system for. Again, California State University system is the largest university system in the country. Yet, as I've been telling you guys, 70% of black males tend to drop out their first year. And that was before the pandemic. Right. So I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but I am glad to see this program. So shout out to Mr. Randall Saraguchi. Apologies again if I mis, uh, mispronounced his name. But look into that if you're interested. You can find this article in sanfrancisco.cbslocal.com and it's entitled STEM Academy Fellowship Trains Black Men to Become Teachers. Shout out to him. Next up, some of you uh, may have run into this piece. This is one you can find on shopblack.us. It's entitled Black Inventor Creates the World's First Self-Growing Farming System to Combat Food Scarcity and Land Shortage. Don't have a lot of information on here, but you can find an interview, a video interview that you can look into and watch yourself. And I think the images on the right show you what the uh, self-growing farming system kind of apparatus, apparatus, apparatus look like. You know, so you can check that out for yourself. But it does say Daryl Addison is a black inventor with degrees in chemistry and physics. He's also the CEO and founder of Torpedo Pot a company that makes the world's first self-growing planters. Torpedo Pot optimizes the conditions in which plants can achieve their full potential and is scientifically designed to grow your plants for you. Word. So, check that out. Mr. Donnie Mack, what's going on? Blade Runner. Uh, what's going on? Broken Blade. BGS in the house. Thank you for supporting that and putting that paper up, man. It's good to see you. Hope all is well. Um... See, right, okay, all right. So, Taylor, Joe, oh, you want some free Cosby shirts, huh? <laughs> okay, uh, all right. Now, this one up, this one is really more of a quick acknowledgement. This is something I didn't expect to see you guys might find interesting. Of course, those of you who are around my age, remember this gentleman. Uh, this is the singer, um, I'll Be Sure. 
And uh, recently he was told that he only had four to six months to live. Um, so this was a piece uh, that I ran into recently, but it says in, in October 2020, the singer, songwriter, producer, and radio host posted a picture of himself on Instagram wearing a medical gown. Now, hold on. Eh. There we go. All right. Um, so he says, after major surgery and following all protocol, there was a very interesting discovery related to my illness outside of just my gallbladder and blockage. You'll really get a kick out of this one, but you won't be surprised. Let's just say I'm, I'm still here breathing and not like the others. He also admitted that he remained free of COVID-19. Uh, hearing that I only had four to six months left if I didn't fix me was eye-opening and mind-boggling. He also threw a little shade at the people in his life who didn't take time to check on him. On the flip side, I'd like to revisit and sincerely send a very special thank you to anyone. Appreciate that support, K-Ron. Um, he says, well, welcome to, to the and welcome to the Brotherhood, Henry. Appreciate you being here. Um, he says, I'd like to send a very special thank you to anyone that I used to know, as he has hashtag, who didn't have time or couldn't be bothered to reach out and see if I was still among the living or might have checked out. Um, including family members. Uh oh, no worries. It's always a good time to spring clean and shrink my already small circle of individuals to a significantly smaller dot. I ain't mad at you. I've been talking to y'all about the same uh, terms of walkaway game. But let's, there's a little video here where they go into a little bit of his experience. So let me get this crap off the screen. I hate there we go. All right. So let's see if I can play this one for you guys here. Ah, come on. Work with me. There we go.
Yeah, that's I'll be sure. Yes, it is. You can open a call with So if you're not familiar, if you're just coming in late, yeah, that was I'll be sure. And uh, he found out that he only had about four to six months to live. He didn't go into detail uh, about the specifics of everything. He went in apparently because he had a gallbladder blockage, but then apparently uh, something else as well. So you can see him there getting the tubes taken out of uh, his belly. And all I can say, probably the reason I showed that too, is, um, you know, I notice when I look at the specifics on my audience, I tend to, you know, um, invite uh, men my age. That seems to be the dominant group. I, I want to say up to 97% of my audience. Uh, so that being said, brothers, please check on your health. Please take care of yourself. Like I said, I told you guys earlier today, I found out I had a pinched nerve where the pain is radiating, radiating down my left arm. I thought I was having stroke issues. Did I go to the doctor? No. I just endured it for a couple of years, <laughs> like as dumb as that is. But, you know, so I, you know, I went, got checked out, found out it was a pinched nerve and I'm working on it now. My point being, don't make the mistake I made. You know, we need, we need to be far more uh, attuned to our health and not just in the most obvious ways. Weight loss is great. You know, um, mobility, flexibility, you know, cardio, all of that is great. Muscle gain is great. All of that. But we also need to be more attuned to other issues. So if you feel anything going on with you, I don't care if it has to do with whatever. You know, if you're able to get it checked out, I understand everybody doesn't have access to health care. If you're able to, please do so. If it's serious, please don't walk it off. I mean, Patrice O'Neill once talked about how, you know, our prostate could fall out and walk on, fall on the ground. And we'd sooner ask one of our boys if he's had that experience than go in and actually get checked out. So that being said, Please check out, you know, check yourselves out, brother, especially if you're over 40. It ain't no joke, right? It ain't no joke. Stuff starts to break down for real. So make sure you stay on top of that. And uh, it looks like the brothers in the chat can definitely tell you something about that. So, yeah, over, over 35, over 40, definitely make sure you're on top of things. Right. All right. So. Move ahead here. All right. So make sure you support the Institute for Black Male Studies. You can go to Institute for Black Male Studies dot com and you can pick up merchandise. You can watch you can engage uh, uh, some online workshops or webinars. Excuse me. You can check out a number of free interviews, one with Dr. William Smith, who we had in our here earlier. Um, I am going to be inviting Dr. Dunbar, who is in the chat, uh, to do one of those interviews uh, for the Institute for Black Male Studies uh, soon. So I hope he'll be amenable to that. I mean, right now he's uh, he's in the gym and he's probably got too many women to be taking a whole lot of calls. He's got a lot that he's juggling, but I'm going to get that brother in there. So I hope he's well. Shout out to you, sir, um, as well as Dr. Thunder. We got to make that happen. Uh, but you can check out my interview with Dr. Thunder from a couple weeks ago and the interview he did with me on his channel several months ago. All right. So, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Dr. Goodbar. <laughs> So anyway, uh, check out the Institute for Black Male Studies, support it, take the course. And if you have a recommendation for a course you'd like to see uh, me cover, 
in the institute and there are plenty of brothers that come in and, and and do some lecture duties throughout the course of the class that i currently have posted on there uh so you can go ahead and jump in those and you'll you, you might you might enjoy that there's a range of things from free to not so free uh but support the site uh support the the, ch the channel will continue to bring you more all right so we get to it. Black males are still America's imaginary monster rapists. Why do I say that? Right? What makes us monster rapists? Well, y'all know the deal. Right? Early part, when you start talking about the 18th and early, uh, well, actually the 19th century, early 20th century, the dominant narrative, if you go through Dr. Curry's Man Not, was that black men were childlike. Right? We were childlike. But one of the things you start to notice, especially toward the end of slavery and into the 20th century, is the perspective on black men took a turn and it definitely became one more associated with um, uh, violence, rage, you know, irrationality, hypersexuality and so on and so forth. And we talk about the very specific stereotypes associated with black men that gave America a vocabulary or how to perceive black males as just that. And this is one of the reasons where even if you have a black male that is guilty of something, right, that actually may have committed an act, it is far easier for us to digest him as guilty. Oh, appreciate that, Andrew. Appreciate the support. Um, yeah. So it's much e easier for us to digest his guilt because we are pre-acclimated to seeing black males as such, right? What do I mean? Well, you know, even though it was a bit unexpected, the latest example of which is one Dr. Bill Cosby or Dr. William H. Cosby, I believe it is, um, who has gotten out of prison as of today. And I even got to shout out his wife um, because uh, both his wives, his actual wife and his former television wife, um, who have been incredibly supportive, right? Camille Cosby and Felicia Rashad have had his back. I mean, for real. Uh, Felicia Rashad today shut down her comments and said a great injustice has been righted today. She didn't care what nobody thought. Um, so, you know, he's had a lot of a lot of support from some very key people. But as you can see, you can find this in this, you know, these articles all over the place. This one is particular to NBCNews.com. Bill Cosby released after assault conviction overturned by Pennsylvania's Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Previous prosecutor had decided not to charge the comic and actor. And he relied on that move to speak freely and give incriminating statements. Those were used against him. He was incarcerated for about two years. Shout out to Kenneth. Appreciate that support and is just getting out today. All right. Um, so if we go through this piece, I'm not going to go through it word for word because I think most of us already kind of know um, Bill Cosby on Wednesday. Um, uh, oh, excuse me. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned the indecent assault conviction of Bill Cosby on Wednesday and ordered his release from prison after finding that he was denied protection against self-incrimination. The court said that a prosecutor's decision not to charge Cosby, 83, in an earlier case opened the door for him to speak freely in a lawsuit against him, thinking he would not incriminate himself criminally. A second prosecutor later used the lawsuit testimony in a criminal trial, and that testimony was key in, the conv in his conviction years later. Cosby was convicted on three felony counts of aggregated in indecent assault in 2018, of drugging and assaulting Andrea Constant in 04, and was serving a three to 10 year sentence. 
He has served nearly three years of the sentence. The state Supreme Court said Cosby cannot be retried on the same charges. Right. So this is what we're looking at now. Um, I myself have always looked at this situation as not I'm not I don't this whole issue of whether or not Cosby is, is the most you know perennial rapist of the 20th century. I think he's a celebrity uh, in celebrity culture. Um, who is engaged in a lot of wild stuff. And I think there's a period of time when this was considered acceptable. This was part of how a lot of people got down. I think money was involved. I think there were a lot of factors. There was a lot of greed. There was a lot of attention involved. Um, I've read articles in the last number of years, some of which have strangely disappeared, however, where a number of people were kind of side pieces that were put up and taken care of for a good period of time and weren't that, that thrilled when those that little you know ride ended, there were other incidents where it was clear that some of the women accusing him were misrepresenting themselves, and those didn't seem to make the discussion. Nevertheless, I'm not really you know here to argue about Cosby. Like I said, I was using the image to represent this issue where black men become the face of um, you know being monster rapists, right? And we still are, right? I don't care if you're talking about R. Kelly or Michael Jackson or whomever else. There's this string and constant string at that of black male faces that seem to solidify that we are some kind of ongoing you know, threats to society. But see, for every Bill Cosby, 10 cases of black men who are getting out of prison and serving anywhere from 10 to 40 years with no evidence and in fact being being exonerated based on a lack of DNA evidence or DNA evidence that showed that they weren't no, they weren't even involved. Those cases get swept under the rug. And it's, it's one of the reasons the Onyx Report covers them because they get swept under the rug. Just like cases where you have female teachers raping boys, they are, you know, there are articles written, but they never seem to get national attention. They just seem to fall to the wayside until, you know, some of us pick them up and put them out, you know, for analysis. Well, that tends to be the case with black men. So, yeah, Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, all these figures will be put up real quick to make statements about black men as a whole. But all the cases where you actually find black men exonerated and you guys see me reporting on this stuff damn near weekly. And since I shifted to a daily format, I've done that there as well. Now, strangely enough, people don't seem to like those articles. So those those videos. So when I talk about black men who've been exonerated or falsely accused or falsely charged or killed unjustly. Strangely, those views have those videos have the lowest number of views. Interesting. But if I talk about Bill Cosby, all of a sudden everybody's there. Part of the reason for that is our, we are predisposed to the idea that black men are inherently criminalistic, inherently violent, inherently um, uh, um, hypersexual in nature. And we are comfortable with those ideas. Even black men themselves will impose those ideas on one another because we have been predisposed to this vocabulary particularly through popular media, for generations. It's par for the course. It's something that's accepted. It even ties into what I talked about a few weeks ago when I was talking about how few of us even know anything about our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, except for when the family talks about the things he did wrong. That's one of the reasons why we can focus on the negative to remember black men, but we can't focus on anything else because we've been predisposed to associate black masculinity with negativity. Right. That's one of the things we've learned. But that's another reason why I wanted to cover. 
something that crossed my desk the other day. No, 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 no. There it is. All right. So this is this got my attention. And I thought it was something that I should share. Right? You can find this on the uh, journals.sagepub.com site. You can see there. Um, are black women and girls associated with danger? Implicit racial bias at the intersection of target age and gender. Right? This is a piece by Kelsey C. Thien, Rebecca Neal, uh, Austin J. Simpson, and... Uh, I'll just do show all author, authors and Andrew R. Todd. And so I'll read the abstract, right? We investigated whether stereotypes linking black men and boys with violence and criminality generalized to black women and girls. In experiments one and two, non-black participants completed sequential priming tasks wherein they saw faces varying in age, uh, race, excuse me, race, age, and gender before categorizing danger-related objects or words. Experiment three, uh, compared task performances across non-black and black participants. Results revealed that A, implicit stereotyping of blacks as more dangerous than whites emerged across target age, target gender, and perceiver race. With B, a similar magnitude of racial bias across adult and child targets, and C, a smaller magnitude for female than male targets. Evidence for age bias and gender bias also emerged, whereby D across race, adults target, adult targets were more strongly associated with danger than were child targets, and E within black but not white targets, male targets were more strongly associated with danger than were female targets. That's a mouthful. I know. That's a mouthful. Nevertheless. What is genuinely uh, uh, or generally referring to here, right, is that to this day, when you study everyday people and you look at what they find fearful, it still tends to be black males. Now, this study, um, I mean, it, it, it affirms what we already know in some respects, but, you know, the benefit to this type of research is that sometimes what you think is common sense truth changes. Sometimes we need to keep up with this. This is a piece from 2019, so it's fairly recent, a couple of years ago. Nevertheless, highlights some of the things we talk about, and it is directly tied to what I read earlier in terms of social dominance theory, uh, sub, uh, subordinate target hypothesis. Um, where'd I go? Ah, ah, dang it. Thing fell off the screen. Bear with me for one moment. If this will let me put this up. Eh, disappeared. Okay. Anyway, I was talking about subordinate male target hypothesis. And basically, um, it coincides with that. Basically, it, it continues to prove uh, Sedanius correct, right? That at the end of the day, when examining conflicts of this nature, we tend to find that black males remain the threat. And this is something that we still haven't reconciled with. I think most of us know it, but we haven't completely reconciled the reality and the truth to that. Right? We haven't reconciled that. And let me see. All right. 
somebody said uh, Donald Rumsfeld died today. Hmm. I didn't hear about that. All right, 394 watching. Again, like, share, subscribe, join, and donate. Appreciate your presence. Participate in the chat. Um, nevertheless, ah, buttons. Okay, so the piece that I just read, the abstract I just looked at, this was actually the reason for tonight's broadcast. I really wanted to examine this idea about implicit, implicit racial bias in regard to how black men were seen and who is actually regarded as a threat. And I was using Cosby as the face of that because even though you have this man whose face for generations or for decades has been associated with uh, being fathers, so on and so forth, um, it didn't take long. It wasn't difficult for people to perceive him as evil. I'm not saying he's, he's therefore innocent or guilty or any of that. I'm simply saying that um, by and large, we associate black males with guilt and with criminality far easier than others. And it seems that a lot of the research seems to support that. Now, there is a cost, however. There is a cost for uh, black men being perceived this way. And it's one of those things that we, we take for granted. We don't think much about. We kind of dismiss. The ongoing cost of seeing black men as monsters, even intra-communally, even within the community, intra-racially, within the racial group, within the black community, black men are still perceived as the threat. In my lifetime, I have seen more black women and girls outwardly talking about things they haven't even directly experienced, things they've heard from others, things they've seen in fictional films, and internalizing that and, and embracing it as true, even when the data shows the exact opposite. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where the assumptions about, say, abuse is that, well, black men are killers. They're killing. I mean, one of the things I heard uh, a couple of years ago, I used to hear it frequently. Black men kill everybody, but they kill women in mass. You talk about less than 1% of black men killing intimate partners. And the numbers of women killing black men aren't that far behind. But they also don't include proxy violence. So when women get other men to kill the men they want dead, those numbers don't tend to count. But my point is, we've internalized these ideas so to, to such a degree that males themselves are raised to believe that they are the threat that others see them as. And it's acceptable even within family structures for that to be the case. And we say nothing about it. This is just considered an accepted wisdom. And we need to challenge it. But we need to challenge it most particularly using data. But I'm going to give you a couple of random examples of the ways in which this kind of idea around threat. Uh, appreciate the Cash App, Lawrence. Thank you. Um, around threat tends to play off. Like this. This is a piece you can actually find from Atlanta Black Star. Right? And it's entitled Skull of Black Man with Bullet Wounds Found in Mass Grave in Tulsa, near site of the race massacre. Hassan, appreciate that support. Right? So one of the shows I did uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about, and this was this was related to Green Gorilla's uh, uh, video he had recently done. Shout out to Green Gorilla. 
Um, he was doing a show earlier. It might still be going on. I'm, I'm not sure. But he was clarifying uh, critical race theory. So BGS and I had a discussion on the recent Shatterpoint on critical race theory. And you can follow that up with a discussion that uh, Green Gorilla goes into where he goes into uh, critical race theory with more depth. So shout out to him. Hope all is well with him. Anyway, this particular piece deals with race massacres. And one of the things I've talked about is that when we talk about race massacres, and some researchers argue there have been over 500 of them that have taken place in American culture, American history. Nevertheless, when we talk about race massacres, we talk about them as black events. Right? And this gives a, a certain kind of currency you know, to any kind of discussion on oppression to anyone that's identified as black. Now, it is perfectly acceptable for black women and girls or even LGBTs to identify very specific crimes or injustices against them. And that's acceptable. I have no problem with that. But somehow, when it comes to black males, especially cisgendered heterosexual black males, there's a problem when black males start to identify what's taking place with them without qualifying for other demographics. It somehow becomes a problem. If we're going to talk about race massacres, should we disaggregate the data by sex, gender? What would happen if we actually looked at African-American tragedy, historical tragedies, and we actually asked the question, who was targeted here? Would we find Sedanius to be correct? You know, whether we're talking about the various wars that we've experienced all the way up from the American Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War One, Two, Three, you know, War, War One and Two, uh, yeah, Korea, Vietnam. Would we find black males, as far as the black community, heterosexual black males at that, suffering to the greatest degrees? Would we find, in terms of race massacres, that white men who were burning down houses and killing people arbitrarily, taking their land afterwards, actually targeted black men differently? I don't think it's much of a shock, but we're not, not even black males are used to qualifying history in that way. Now, this was an accusation made by many feminists going back to the 70s that uh, black studies was uh, primarily male focused. But, you know, in many ways, the academy was framed that way. The language was framed that way. So, you know, if you said the term man, you were talking about humankind, but that was the time period. That wasn't something black males initiated. What? What happens if black males actually do ask that question? If we disaggregate the data historically, and this is something that we did very recently uh, a couple of weeks ago when, um, you know, uh, attorney Dennis Sperling, BGS Edmore and myself began to have a conversation about um, whether or not uh, black males were the target of the slave trade here in the Western Hemisphere, particularly in North America. And we found research data that suggested that black males were between 80 and 95% of the targeted go uh, targeted group brought in for enslavement. If you look at West African slavery or the Arab slave trade, they did fixate on women. They, they often castrated or killed the males, but they really fixated on acquiring women. But in the European slave trade, they often sought out men for labor and were quite satisfied with men dying, working themselves to death. But see, we've been taught, whether we're talking about racial massacres or enslavement, we don't disaggregate the data for race and sex and, and gender. And we, no, it's a black occurrence. But we're able to disaggregate when it comes to other things. So if you're going to talk about rape during slavery, we immediately associate that with black women and girls because that, that is something we've been taught to do. It's okay to make that caveat when it comes to them. 
But then you run across work by myself or Dr. Tommy Curry. You start to talk about, wait a minute, black men were raped as well. We just accepted that rape as par for the course, and we didn't classify it as something to be disaggregated from any of the other data. And we found out that not only were black men being raped by white men, they were also being raped by white women who used proxy violence, the threat of mob violence, to impose their will. And we associate, when we think about rape in a contemporary sense and we project it into the past, one of the things we talk about are the ways men can threaten women into sex. We do this, of course, with Cosby in regard to drugs and many other black men. But when we actually start to explore black male vulnerability and we find that black men can be made vulnerable even by a four foot six woman who weighs 100 pounds. I don't know. I'm just throwing numbers out there. I don't know if those if what she looks like with those dimensions. But my point is, regardless of how waifish and small she may be, the threat of proxy violence gives her a great deal of power. Now, obviously, I'm talking about this during the enslavement period, but it's not limited to that. You can look at cases of white women dominating black men all the way up through the mid 20th century using the threat of rape the same way they did during enslavement to secure black, the black male phallus for her sexual pleasure. Right. Black men are still subject to that, the threat of it. But is that limited to the white community or white women? Not necessarily. What we've often seen afterwards are the ways in which black men themselves can be controlled using institutions such as the police department, family court, child services. We've actually seen black women initiate you and misrepresent situations, falsely accuse men and use these institutions to control and dominate black men. We've seen that happen, too. But again, we're not allowed to talk about it. We're not really allowed to talk about white women during slavery because somehow they became these, you know, caged birds and gilded cages or whatever. So we're not we, we don't really uh, talk about white women's roles in enslavement. And we don't talk about how black men can be made vulnerable, to even black women and the ways that that has become part and parcel to black male life with no discussion. And to say so is uncouth. I am uncouth because I will bring that up in polite conversation. That's not acceptable in professional circles. It's not considered acceptable in um, research-based circles. Like if you're going to talk about this at a conference or even in a class discussion or a panel, that's not considered acceptable. And people will immediately start to ask you, well, what are your sources? What are you, oh, really? But if I say, yeah, black women got raped, nobody asks you for sources. It's an accepted wisdom. Conferences will even tell you if you want to have a panel of black men talking about black men, it's not acceptable unless you have black women and LGBTs on the panel. But if you have a panel of women, there's no nobody asks for black male studies scholars or black men to even be present. It's not required. So we have diversity, but diversity as it applies to everyone but black men and black men are yet again asked to be quiet. Black men and boys are asked to be quiet about their experiences. Don't disrupt the narrative. Be quiet. Your vulnerability isn't real. And then you'll have black men that'll join in and tell you your vulnerability isn't real. And that if you really, if you really just puffed your chest out and manned up, all the vulnerabilities will fall to the ground because you're too hard for them. Word? I don't know how many hard men 
fought against enslavement, fought against Jim Crow, fought against all of these different systems. You know how many brothers fought in, in Tulsa? They picked up arms in Tulsa. Don't get it twisted. Black men are not cowards. They fought back. But they're fighting against systems. And part of what I'm raising the question about in my work in general is if these systems are difficult for black men to grapple with on their own, what happens when black women and girls are conscripted against their own men too? What happens when they're able to be coerced with individual advantage? What do black men do then? So I know I've long strayed off the point, but the point of this image here was that they found a black male bullet ridden, right? In a context where they believe as many as 300 people died and more than 800 were injured in the Tulsa race massacre. I do believe those numbers are, are a little low, but anyway, they said that uh, this devastated the affluent black Greenwood community a hundred years ago, Oklahoma archeologists and forensic scientists began to excavate a section of the Oak Lawn Cemetery in October. The area was thought to be the site of 18 black victims of the massacre on the conclusion of, our, of the archaeological search, investigators had discovered 19 sets of remains and officials announced on June 25th that nine sets had undergone complete examinations. According to the Washington Post, 35 coffins were recovered. The remains of the man with evidence of bullet wounds was discovered among a row of juveniles' graves, but lower and have not been examined yet. The damage from the bullet wounds is seen in the head and arm, and one bullet was recovered from the man's shoulder. It says he has multiple projectile wounds. Does anybody care? Does anybody ask the question whether or not black men were targeted to a greater degree than any other demographic in regard to these racial massacres? And if so, what do we do with that? Do we discuss it? Do we research it? Do we, do we have... Um, conferences and panels where we look into that and what might be the gender implications of such a dynamic does the subordinate target the subordinate male target hypothesis play a role and should it play a role in our our, our re-examining of traditional historical narratives about the black experience do we do that not really but part of the reason we don't do that is the more you attend these conferences or 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 at least survey the field of Africana studies, the fewer males you tend to find, which directly relates to the number of black males graduating high school and going into college in the first place. We're not supposed to talk about that either. Somehow, it just doesn't come up. All right. It's just a question. Well, one of the things I would say about this issue here, when they talk about the Oakland Cemetery, I'm not sure if this is the same cemetery, but I think I said this to you guys before. When I started at Fresno State, we had a, a session where a gentleman was covering a documentary he created called Banished. And he was looking at the ways that there were several race massacres. Um, and one of the ways he is, I think he was a journalist. One of the ways he found out about it is when he went to go research, look at the city newspapers in multiple cities, he found that there would be no issues in certain months. And these would be newspapers that had archives that went back decades, right? That went back over, over you know, a century. And when he would go in the month of their, you know, he, the reason, the way he would find race massacres is by finding the months that there wasn't a paper 
And then he would go out and interview elders in the community and they would talk about what actually took place, those particular racial ma massacres, right? And there was even an interview he did with one elder woman where she told him about it and then she took him to the house she grew up in and she pointed to where her mother and father were buried on that land. And the white family that took that household and passed it down were still living in it. She was living in poverty with, with much of the black community. They were living in her ancestral home. This didn't just happen in Tulsa. But the reason I brought that story up is another story he told is where he interviewed an elder white man who was a little boy during the Tulsa massacres. And he said at one morning after the massacre, he was walking around the corner and he came upon a cemetery and he noticed that they were feeding bodies into the hay baler. And now when you look at the implications of that, what he was basically saying was not only did you find mass graves, but the very soil itself was comprised of the, 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 the bodies of those who were killed. Not just, you know, graves and coffins or, or, or even skeletal remains, but the soil itself was compiled of those killed which makes it difficult to get any kind of accurate count because how many people actually examine the soil? And he didn't say how widespread it was, how many cemeteries it happened. He was a little boy at the time. He said he just sat there in awe watching them load bodies into a hay baler. If you don't know what a hay baler is, it basically takes whatever you put into it and it chops it up into a fine mess, which you compress and shape in for as far as hay. But when it comes to bodies, it just becomes compost. Right? This is what it is. So this I show as an example, right? Where we talk about this black male body found riddled with bullets. Is that an example of what happens with black men? Right? One of the things we can ask. One of the things we can ask. And then we have the case with Derek Chauvin. Now, many of you guys know one of the things we can ask. Oh, and then we have, okay, oh, there we go. So, we look at this case here, right? Many of us know Chauvin is the police officer that killed George Floyd, kneeling on his neck for nine minutes. And, in, and on June 25th, last Friday, he was sentenced to 22 and a half years. Right? We found black men sentenced for killing police dogs for longer periods of time. And yet that's considered an acceptable period of time. He's currently segregated off from the rest of the population at the prison so that he wouldn't be subject to reprisal, particularly from black inmates. There he is. And yet, and still, you have scholars that'll tell you that black men are privileged because George Floyd's death took up so much time and attention. This is how we talk about vulnerable black men, privileged, because they take up too much room in the conversation about police homicide, a category they actually dominate. I don't know if we hear that discussion about too many other things. I really don't. 
The demographic that dominates the numbers are the most vulnerable in a particular given context are the ones that are considered to take up too much room on the discussion and therefore have to be displaced by those who die to far less, far fewer degrees, far less degree, to a far less degree. And that's acceptable, right? So when we talk about this issue of black men being vulnerable, right? Strictly on the basis of being perceived as threats, being perceived as monsters and monster rapists, if you will. The degree to which black males vulnerability works against them, nobody wants to talk about. And it doesn't even always have to be a life threatening endeavor, right? Sometimes it can be something a lot more subtle. Here is an article that recently came out about one Mary J. Blige, right? Some of you may have seen this. R&B singer Mary J. Blige refuses to date a broke man making low wages, says she's not taking care of any more men. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. Do you think? I'm just wondering, are we going to talk about your physical abuse of men or the raping of young black men under age, which is statutory and illegal, by the way. We're going to talk about that. Young man recently came forward a few weeks ago talking about how he, as an underage male, would be flown out to different locations and violated by Mary J. Blige. You want to have that conversation? I would be dealing with uh, black male vulnerability as well. Like I said, it doesn't have to be a life-threatening endeavor for it to be important. Sometimes it can be extremely subtle. Sometimes it can be a matter of legality. Sometimes it can be a matter of violation that we don't consider a violation. And yet and still, black males that often find themselves in these situations tend to need the same types of support that black girls who have been sexually violated need. It's just not particularly perceived as something they need help with. But it is, often. Whether it's a family friend, a teacher, an authority figure, or a globally known superstar. It is what it is. We don't have those discussions yet. Because again, if black men are perceived as threats, do we empathize with them? Do we see empathy as our first reaction to a black male who is either, and that could be a black male who's experienced something traumatic or a black male who's accused of something. Is empathy our first response? To what extent is empathy an afterthought when it comes to black male, black males who are vulnerable? And I know we don't, we're not supposed to talk about those things on YouTube. We're supposed to talk about black men strictly in a position where, you know, they experience no pain. But black male life is shaped by vulnerability in more ways than we may want to pay attention to. It is what it is. It is what it is. You can't sidestep it because it's uncomfortable. This is the reality of what we're looking at. Right? Black men are considered dangerous. Now, here, I talked about this issue the other day, but I did it from my car. So this time I wanted you to show, I wanted to show you the face and the image. A woman who identifies herself as Asian doll. And she says she only dates serial killers. Please have at least three bodies before you talk to me. Now, the reason I put this up is not that she somehow represents a majority of women who say they're out looking for killers. 
But we know, particularly in African-American culture, but more than that, even when it comes to other groups of women who idolize certain types of black men and certain types of black manhood, the idea around threatening black men is a fetish. It's a fetish. One of the unofficial studies that I do is I have conversations with black men and I ask them how many different types of women have actually asked you to play out a fetish of raping them. You'd be surprised how many black men get this request, even from black women. I used to talk about this with Obsidian years ago when I first was brought into the space. And, he, and even then, he talked about how common it was from the men that would call in and talk to him. I found it to be no different now. I've even asked my students off the record outside of class, what are the kinds of experiences they have sexually? One of the most frequent things they're asked to do is to play out a fetish of raping the woman they're with. And you'd be surprised how many of the women we're talking about are activists who are devout feminists, devout, uh, you know, anti-rape activists. You know what I mean? Common. Absolutely common. I'd venture to say if we talk to larger black men, be it large in terms of muscularity or in terms of height and weight, you might find that it's even higher amongst them. I couldn't really say on that one, though, but I can say there are plenty of black men that have had these experiences where they have been asked and expected to play out fetishes around rape, whether it has to do with fetishes around being slaves or whether it has to do with fetishes around being thugs. The idea is that black men are associated with threat and that that's commonly perceived. And many black men commonly experience that. And we've, if anything, learned how to take it as par for the course. We don't really think much about it, but it happens. I think I've told you guys before, one of the assignments I give in my black male studies class is for uh, my students to go out and look at porn sites and, 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 and write down the various terms that black men are, are, you know, the terms used to describe black men and the titles and the descriptions of porn videos. We are weaponized phalluses. That's how we're perceived. We are walking fetishes. Now, what that ends up translating to on the sexual marketplace is, you know, black men do tend to be sought out. Some of the studies have shown we're sought out only second to white men, despite our economic status. Now, our economic, um, economic status is better than most think, but it's really it's really ridiculous compared to other groups. It is. We are relatively poor. We have no inheritance, but black men are doing better and worse than their own women. And when you control for incarceration, we're doing worse. No other group experiences this. No other group, when you control for incarceration, actually earns less than their women. Because incarceration is not considered to be a factor. It's supposed to be such a small group that most people don't study the relationship between income and incarceration. For black men, it is a significant factor. But according to the BLS, you still find that black men earn more for those who are employed than black women their own age at each late age group, 18 to 65. So that's a weird kind of dynamic. And it, and it speaks to the particularities of black male life that we actually have to have these conversations with nuance. But we're not trained to do that with black males. Black males are acceptable when it comes to discussing them as criminals. They're acceptable when discussing them even as, um, you know, victims of police homicide, but they're only distinct categories where you're supposed to talk about black men. And after that, you need to change the conversation. 
That's it. You're not supposed to talk about it any further. Right. But here you have an open fetish around black men as murderers. Now, again, I don't bring this up because I think she represents a majority of black women or women otherwise. But I do think the idea of associating black men with threat or their capacity to threaten, dominate, uh, um, the physically attack or kill as it's one feature. I think there is a trend with that. Right. That goes along with this. But again, all of this keeps going back to the major point that I'm talking about tonight. Black men as America's imaginary monster rapist. There is an actual fetish that operates within the community and outside of the black community centered around black men as threats, sexual and otherwise. And the lack of respect that comes with that, by the way. Right. Let me see. Uh, where'd it go? It's not. I already had the Sedanius piece up. Hold on. Yeah. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties there. And the threat is such that we can actually forget that black men are even human. To the extent that they can endure abuse upon abuse and nobody has to care. I think I posted this one as well, but I think it merits being viewed again in the context of the discussion. Right? When we look at the ways in which black men as threat play out in a lack of empathy. And if anything, when you see black men experience threat, right, they tend to be laughed at even by other black men. But I think it's important that we actually see this through a different set of eyes, looking at black men as vulnerable right, and thus worthy of empathy. I'm going to open this up, but I am going to keep it muted uh, just so you can see what I'm talking about. Right. Repeats there. Let's go ahead and repeat it. You know what? I'll actually turn on the sound. Y'all see a lot of empathy in the responses to videos like that? Traditionally, is that what you see? Not a lot of people have empathy in situations like that. Black men tend to be ridiculed. Right? Absolutely ridiculed. And this is taken as acceptable. Right? It's considered in some circles as justified. And why is it justified? Because if black men are violent, monster rapist criminals, then anything that happens to them is not only their fault, but is therefore warranted. This is one of the reasons that there's such lack of empathy. But you want to know one of the real reasons that we experience some of these kinds of issues? Some of the things that really begin to shape criminality? It's just one of several. Here we go. Yeah. 
automation helped kill up to 70% of the U.S.'s middle-class jobs since 1980. Now, 1980 is just a couple years after deindustrialization, so black men lost jobs overseas and un, to an unparalleled degree, right? Jobs that many black men depended upon. Much of what was available, particularly in urban centers, was the drug trade. Then you run into the early 1980s and where we see increased automation. So if you really want to look behind this so-called criminality, the cases that affirm our criminality are rooted in economic injustices. More often than not, this is what uh, what is meant when people say that crimes amongst the poor are environmental. And trust me when I tell you that shit is about to escalate. Today is supposed to be the day nationwide that we really need to be looking into this question of the end of the rent moratoriums. What does it mean when millions of people might be put out of their homes or thousands, whatever, right? Put out of their homes, no place, no, no housing security, right? What does that mean? What might it produce today knowing full well this is the day when that's supposed to occur. Some states and cities you find are pushing this back best they can by about 30 days in some circumstances. Like I think Philly pushed it back by about 30 days. I'm not sure how far back LA pushed it. I want to say at least a month. But then the question to be raised is how much is 30 days really? But nevertheless, these are the issues. These are the issues that I'm trying to get us to look at with a different set of lenses, through a different set of lenses. That by the time we actually start talking about um, issues surrounding individuals like Dr. Cosby, we're able to do so being more cognizant of what we bring to the equation. Right? Now, there was a piece that came out today alongside the announcement that Cosby was getting out. Right. This is an interesting piece. You can find this in the Washington Post. And I know the Washington Post is one of those uh, 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 sites where you got to pay. So there's a paywall. Some of you may or may not have it. Um, I end up paying it every month and forgetting to, to stop paying it. But articles come up. So whatever. But this is a piece entitled Bill Cosby Sexually Assaulted Me. I didn't tell because I didn't want to let black America down. It's a piece by Jewel Allison. Right. She is a poet an author. She graduated from NYU. She's a public speaker and a music educator. And what she does in this piece is mostly talk about the various people that defended Cosby or questioned the accusations posed against him. And a lot of it is shaming. But when you really get down to what she says happens to her, there's no description. She just says she was assaulted. But, you know, believe all women. So that's supposed to stand in for, did you call the police? Did you file a charge? And then of course we have all kinds of talking points about why that's an inappropriate question to ask scores of people, but it is what it is. But I find it interesting how readily this piece was produced. Not 20 minutes after most of us found out that Cosby was out, this piece was up. I was like, that's real interesting. Real interesting. No description of what happened to her. No detailed analyses. No evidence. No nothing. Just something happened. 
And I felt bad because too much of black America was supporting Cosby and really y'all are all tripping. You know, that's, that, that's the kind of narrative. It's a really, it's more of a shaming tactic more than anything else. It's more of what it's about, but this is considered acceptable, right? This is considered acceptable for black men to ask for evidence. That's considered a, a misogynist in and of itself, sexist, because you're supposed to believe her simply because it was stated. But while we do that, we ignore many of the cases, especially those that aren't in the limelight, that don't happen to celebrities, but tend to happen to everyday men, of men being falsely accused, falsely incarcerated, on charges that are questionable with no evidence. I've had black men on my show who have not only lost jobs, but lost their entire careers because their girlfriends were mad at them and decided not to falsely charge them necessarily in the law, but call their jobs and tell their jobs, no evidence, no police being called, but tell their jobs all kind of discriminatory and problematic things. So you got grown men who can no longer work in their careers behind baseless accusations that nobody even bothered to ask for evidence regarding. And that's acceptable. And you're not supposed to say that false accusations can occur. You're supposed to say that it happens so infrequently it can't be measured. And yet I meet the men who are telling me these stories. And there's no conversation for that. I'm telling you, this it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Right? I told you guys last month about a gentleman who called me to tell me a story about how his friend's woman sent him to prison because he came home late. She called the police, filed a false charge because she was accusing him of infidelity and she felt like she was getting back at him because he came home late. I talked to a good brother of mine just the other day who was telling me stories about women who lied about paternity. You got brothers out here with kids they never met and didn't even know they had. Those kids are damn near 30 years old in some circumstances. And in other circumstances, she might hit you with retroactive child support on a child she didn't even tell you about. All of these kinds of issues goes back to something that Green Gorilla was talking about today on his show, right? Where he was talking about the ways in which institutions can be used in all kinds of ways. And as long as they are available, appreciate that, D-Rock. As long as they are available primarily to be used one way, one way. Black men don't have access to these resources to the same degree. The letter of the law is gender neutral in many circumstances, but when men do file these charges, they're not taken seriously. They tend to be services primarily available to women to use against men as a controlling mechanism. And as long as that's the place, my good brother pointed out the ways in which this incentivizes the control and underdevelopment of black men. Now, this is happening to some extent in terms of Western men in general. But most particularly, it happens to a different degree in the black community. And yet again, we're not supposed to talk about that. So that said, what do we do? How do we start having conversations around what Sedanius has laid out? Appreciate that support, Joe. What do we do about that? We actually have empirically based theories that are using accurate historical data that are using studies 
that are testing everything from surveys to interactions, and they're looking empirically, looking at this through means we can measure. And we're finding out on many different fronts where black men fit. And yet, you're not hearing this coming from the academy per se. You got to hear it on YouTube because it's not an accepted part of the conversation. And that's why black men have congregated on social media, particularly on pl channel on platforms like YouTube, because they're free and they're easily accessible. And for the first time in generations, you have a space where black men can speak freely. Now, yes, there are limitations, right? There is some degree of censoring that happens, whether you're talking about Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. Yes, those things do occur, but they're also worldwide in access. This is an unprecedented time period for black men to use this space to hash out ideas, to put their experiences on the table for other black men to scrutinize and share their experiences so we can get a better understanding of what we're dealing with and then ultimately set up our own political base. You guys know, since last summer, I put together Black Male Political Agenda. It is on my blog newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. It is the pinned article at the top, Black Male Political Agenda, and it is a series of bullet point political agendas that black men have written, created, sent to me, and I've, it's congregated in one space because we don't have a black male political agenda and we have the opportunity now to craft one. I would urge the content creators on YouTube to look past petty difficulties, differences, arguments over bullshit and actually focus on what can actually improve the quality of life for black boys and men across class, across occupation, across sex, across. If we can have these conversations and actually use the space constructively, it can be a very powerful moment. Will we? Or will we argue about clicks, views, mainstream access, and bullshit. You tell me. The moment is pregnant. The moment is pregnant. The possibility of what can come out of it depends on what we decide to put into it. What are we going to put into it? Are we going to continue to fight with each other over nothing? Or do we use this to translate this access into some type of power? See, I look at all these black female politicians and judges and attorneys and electoral positions. I, I see them getting these positions. Many, many of them are token positions like our vice president. But nevertheless, I see them getting into these positions and I look at it like it's power. It's tokenized, but it's still power. What do black men do? What do black men have? What can black men build and create? I'm up here trying to implore my brothers to build. I do hope you'll join me in doing so. Otherwise, we are wasting our fucking time. And we don't have time to waste. One day, Appreciate that support, Jarvis. Hope y'all will join me in that. And other than that, I look forward to reading some of the comments um, and finding out what we can actually build. Until that moment, until next week, or at least if I can get off my ass and make my daily videos for tomorrow. Until then, I wish you guys well.
I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man-children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unintelligent henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic and selfish and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace. Thank you.